Hello, I am Grayson Brulte, and welcome to another episode of SAE Tomorrow Today. Before this episode begins, please kindly take a moment to subscribe and be notified when a new episode is released. SAE Tomorrow Today is published every Thursday. On today's episode, I sat down with Tony Jenko, retired FAA safety inspector and aviation mechanic to discuss his experience working in aviation mechanics and safety, both in the armed forces and in the private sector, the broad spectrum of his work from aircraft inspections to policy development, and how to mitigate human error when it comes to aviation safety. And away we go. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Tony. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm super happy to have you here because you've been in the aviation industry for over 45 years. You've got a lot of awesomely incredible stories, which I can't wait for you to share with the audience. But before we dive into your awesome stories, what first got you interested in aviation? Actually, it was a neighbor who had a little Cessna 172 uh, when I was probably nine years old. Took me up for my first flight uh, in the local Hartford, Connecticut area where I grew up for the most part. Um, and from then on, I was hooked. And on the weekends, he'd occasionally say, you want to take a ride? And we'd fly around. And I started to really enjoy the, the feeling and the, uh, the, the air around the airport. Did you go out of Bradley? Is that where the, the Cessna would take off of? No, actually, uh, out of Brainerd and Hartford, out of Hartford, Connecticut and Brainerd, Brainerd Field, their smaller airport. And so from that whole experience, then would you fly over to Long Island, go over the Sound, or would you go up towards Boston um, and go see like the vineyard in Nantucket, or where would you fly? No, actually, he did a lot of circling around my house so I could see my house from the air and things like that <laughs> that were pretty fascinating for a nine-year-old kid to see from the air. So, Oh, that's wonderful. So you, you've got the bug, and then when you started your career, you started as an air aircraft mechanic in the United States Air Force working along the legendary B-52 bombers. Will you please kindly talk about that experience? They're, it's an iconic plane. The dinosaur, yeah, and still flying and still uh, still got a lot of respect for that aircraft. Uh, it's changed over time, as you know. Uh, they've re-engined. They've done a lot of things to it. But uh, um, we used to always wonder if it would get off the ground. It would smoke so bad, you know, burning coal, we'd say. The emissions were black. It, it'd billow away, and, you know, this thing would just take off uh, out of limestone anyways, as you know, up in, in Maine where I was stationed for a very, period of time. And uh, my second tour was over to, to Guam. And, of course, flying B-52s off the island over there, it was a big cliff. So when they dropped out of sight for a little while, it, they'd finally make their way back up. But they, they could carry a heck of a payload. So I give them a lot of respect. Where did this, the smoke come from? Was it coming out of the engines? Because I mean, like this is fascinating. Oh, yeah, the engines. I mean, the engines, we call them coal burners because it, it pushed a lot of jet fuel through those engines. And they were, you know, they were older engines at the time, the old J-57. So they'd smoke a fair amount. <laughs> Was that ever a, a safety concern if there's a you're in theater and there's a, a bad actor and they see, oh, here it comes again, and, and it just looks for these smoke flames? It's basically when they, it wasn't flames, it was just smoke, and it basically would disappear when they pull the throttles back. This is generally on takeoff. They just put a lot of, a lot of fuel through those engines. So you've had this, you, you served honorably in the Air Force, and then you transitioned into the private sector as a line mechanic, going back to what I mentioned earlier, Bradley Airport in Hartford. For 12 years. How would you compare and contrast your experience um, in the armed forces versus in the, in the private sector as a civilian? I think with respect to uh, availability of parts, it was a lot easier in the military because you had a, an ending resource, a non-ending resource of parts where you could basically draw. Uh, you also had other aircraft we used to call can. You could can airplane uh, parts off of an aircraft that was in for a heavy check or whatever to get these other ones serviceable. Whereas with industry, when you turned into industry, all of a sudden, um, your parts could take a few days to get, so you technically could sit on an airplane and uh, for a day or two waiting on some parts to get it back into service. So it's a delay in time more than anything. Um, 
the camaraderie, I think, was the same. I got to say that the friends I had in the military, I still have a lot of those friends, um, you know, 45, 47 years later. Um, and the industry is the same way. Um, the guys that I work with in industry, I still have huge connections there that we still stay in touch. So, Was that just because of the, the brotherhood of, of being involved with aircrafts, the genuine passion and, and, and love of these incredible machines? Yeah, I believe that's a big part of it. It really is. I think that there's a, a brotherhood amongst the, the aviation community in general. It's a, you know We always say it's a small, small community. Uh, and if you mess up, everyone knows about it. If you do a good job, everyone knows about that too. So, we've had a, a lot of in, incredible individuals in the industry suffered a you know tremendous blow today with the passing of, of Chuck Yeager, the legendary pilot that just did just did incredible incredible things. Um, you you mentioned heavy check um, for our listeners who might not be familiar with that mechanic term. Could you kind of expand upon it? Is it the plane comes in, you go all the way down to the bolts, and then you say okay, you go through it and rebuild it, or could you kind of shed some light on what a heavy check is yeah the heavy check is uh an aircraft's probably in a hangar for 30 days and it gets pretty much disassembled down to the nuts and bolts like you say a lot of inspections are done at that point um and then put back together again of course uh correcting all the discrepancies you might you know uncover and how long does a typical commercial plane take to go through a heavy check is there like a set period of time that it takes no, it depends on what you find. I mean, if you find some problems, you could be in there for a while. <laughs> I've, I've seen them sit for six months. So, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Is that a parts issue when they sit, or is that just a mechanical issue? It's it, well, again, uh, like anything else, once you find it and you start digging, it gets it can get worse. So, you know, corrosion was a big thing years ago. It led to aging aircraft, uh, uh, which we might want to talk about a little bit later, which led me into the FAA. But. Um, and it's just time, and as we gain knowledge of uh, corrosion and those sort of things that affect the aircraft, uh, we change our, our limitations, we change our inspection criteria, and you know now you find things you didn't find before. Is the corrosion caused from from the sea, from salt? Is that what the and then water damage would just sit there and wouldn't be discovered to cause the corrosion? Yeah, that's part of it. I mean, the environment, operating environment's absolutely one of the bigger, bigger pieces of that. You know, what, what environment are you operating in? You, you're flying out of uh, uh, San Diego or Cape Cod every day where you're over the ocean all the time. It certainly has a larger effect on aircraft that someone's sitting out in Arizona or whatever and, and operating in a dry environment continuously. You mentioned the FAA, and, I, and let's go there now because there's a really great story. And I see the giant smile on your face of how you went from uh, the pri- uh, the from the government to the private sector into FAA. Could you share that wonderful story with us, please? Yeah, we'll leave the names out of it, but we uh, <laughs> we we maintained aircraft for several companies, and, and the company I worked for at Bradley, uh, several aircraft uh, would come in and out on a frequent basis and on one particular occasion one of them departed the uh, the aircraft the uh, actually we had worked on it that morning um, i was heading back home and um, my beeper went off because of course we didn't have cell phones back then so my beeper went off and uh, i got home picked up the phone and called the maintenance control and they said hey get back to the airport one of the aircrafts on the uh, runway burning and it's like what and it's one we had just worked on so immediately the thought in your mind is, what did we do? But we hadn't done really much more than an overnight to get the thing serviceable to, to fly back out the next day. That's check the oil and kick the tires and things like that. So turning the car around and I was three miles from the airport because I lived in Windsor Locks and um, there's smoke billowing through the sky profusely. And it's like, oh, brother. 
I got to the airport and fire trucks from Windsor Locks were rolling, from Suffield were rolling. Uh, the fire department on the airport was already there. And literally the airplane was uh, right in the middle of the runway, about halfway down. Uh, it was on a takeoff roll. And um, as we talked earlier about corrosion, that led to uh, an issue. It, it had basically had a disc depart the engine and went through the fuselage. And it was a, a, a freight aircraft, luckily. So there were no serious injuries. But the, uh, one of the compressor discs actually departed the, uh, the engine, came through the side of the airplane, and started a fire uh, inside the aircraft. That's what led to the fire. Um, luckily, the, the flight crew was, was savvy enough to understand uh, and, and were able to bring the aircraft to a stop. But they were probably close to rotation um, when, it did, when it did happen. Um, they evacuated the aircraft. Uh, the aircraft was total destroyed uh, and by a... Uh, Virtue of going out there, met some people from the FAA, from the NTSB, and they asked me if um, we would participate in the investigation. And the company that owned the aircraft said, we'd like you to participate. You're on site um, if you could. So for the next two or three months, we basically re removed the engine. It failed. The, uh, the holiday aircraft was destroyed. So um, that was donated to the fire department. Uh, so we stripped all the, the serviceable parts off what was left. Uh, the engine went into a shop, and we oversaw the disassembly and, and determination what caused it and what it was was significant corrosion uh, that led to the failure of the disc it was uh, there's life limited parts in an aircraft engine there they run on times and cycles uh, so you have hour limits and time uh, cycle limits uh, rotational limits for up and down basically is what that amounts to uh, they learned a lesson that it's not just that that has a it has a, a life limit so the air engine had been on wing about 11 years. That's a long time. And the problem with these type of aircrafts is they cycle a lot. They're up and down quickly. So you're up at 40,000 feet, 30,000 feet, and you're back down at, on a humid day. Your engine's pretty cold inside, and it sweats. So it's moisture and corrosion, and this led to an airworthiness directive in the FAA's terms um, for aging aircraft that started a big investigation on these type of operations, like you'd mentioned salt water. Well, the high cycle, low utilization, low hours, high cycle is almost as bad for an, an engine because it's these short hops that kind of, they tear it up. So it led to uh, additional inspections of the whole fleet of these type aircraft, which was significant. Um, but uh, after working with them for these three months or so, um, the NTSB and FAA uh, inspectors asked me, Do you ever consider working for the FAA? And I said, yeah. I had. Um, I'd like to work 40 hours instead of 90. Uh, shortly thereafter, you know, they asked me if I had my paperwork in, and I said, it's been in, and uh, the next thing I know, I got picked up. And uh, that was a tough decision for me because I did enjoy the the, the, the excitement of the working on the ramp and stuff, and uh, it was kind of a hard decision to make. And as uh, we discussed before, um, about three months later, it was just about Christmas, uh, my old boss showed up from the company I worked for uh, and handed me an envelope with a, an offer in it that I had to struggle with to, to, to turn down. But it was a significant uh, raise in money. It was a significant uh, boost for a company car and all these little perks to come back to the company. Um, it was a hard decision to say no. Uh, but then I had to consider why I had actually left. I had two children that I haven't, hadn't seen much. They were growing up. Um, because I was on the road all the time and, you know, working a lot of hours. So, uh, I made the transition to the FAA and it was a good transition. Oh, from 90 hours to, I mean, to 40 hours is, is, I mean, you think about it from the, <laughs> the, the, the dynamic, it's, it's almost Christmas now. And you think about the dynamic. So I'm assuming 
was your wife happy that you were home more? Or she said, get out of the house. <laughs> no, she was very happy. I mean, it had been, uh, we were married, I think probably seven or eight years at the time, nine years. Um, and I'd spent a lot of time on the road, you know, times when I'd say, I'll be back in a couple of days and a month later, you know, I get stuck in South America one time for uh, right up till Christmas Eve. I finally got home and it was, uh, it was a long tour down in Venezuela that wasn't supposed to be that long, but it's how aviation is though. It, it's, it's taxing. And you, you had, and you were at FAA for 27 years. I mean, that's a heck of a, a heck of a run. Were there any memorable highlights, positive highlights that you remember from that run from after your FAA experience? It was all great. I um I started as a field inspector in Winslow Locks. Um, we had oversight of uh, basically uh, aircraft mechanics repair facilities that maintained aircraft. Um, some of the big guys, Pratt and Whitney, of course, is is there. Sikorsky is there. Hamilton Sunstrand is there. So this is a large conglomeration of uh, of corporations there that we oversaw. Um, I progressed from there after about eleven years. I think 10, 11 years. I progressed to. Um, the regional office in Burlington, Massachusetts, which led me up to where I currently live now, um, and uh, worked there for about another 10, 11 years, I guess, and then transferred over to Washington, D.C. So I had uh, a pretty large uh, or pretty wide spectrum, I guess, of, you know, from inspecting to actually writing policy. My last five years, I wrote policy in Washington, D.C. For, for FAA headquarters. So it was pretty exciting to do all those things, and it was um, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. It's it's fascinating because when you're writing policy, you've actually gotten your hands dirty. You've been in crash investigations. You've you've seen things that most people hopefully will never see. So you understand the nuts and bolts. You've taken planes apart, and then you're writing the policy. Which as a as a consumer and an American citizen, thank you for having the understanding of all the the nuts and bolts that go into it. And for a young individual that's looking at your career and said, okay, Tony started here and, and, and worked his way up to here. What advice would you have for that young individual who loves aerospace, maybe went up in a Cessna or flew on a commercial flight with their parents and has the bug? What advice would you have for them that they want to start their career in aerospace? I think, you know, most important thing is if you're going to do it, do it right. There's no room in this, this business for mistakes. As you know, it's it's costly, it's deadly, it's all those bad things that we, we know about, we've heard about, we've read about, we've seen. So I, when I do t- talk to, to students, and I've done that frequently at high schools and all, um, you know, my point is, if are you willing to get on that airplane and fly after you maintained it? Are you willing to put your family in, that's in harm's way and, and fly on that airplane with your family after you've maintained it? And that's the advice I'd give them. It. I've told them too. I've probably been, I've been in 47 of the 50 states. I've been overseas to Europe, South America, Southeast Asia. So I've, if you want to travel and you like that sort of business, and again, it's 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 a great great career. It really is. That's that's deep. When you when you're very passionate about mentoring ships, and you're involved with the FAA's Walk in My Boots program, do you talk about that? Would you if you worked on the plane, would you put your family in it? Is that one of those things that goes into the mentorship to teach? discipline and, and respect to to care for the airline to understand that this plane is a deadly weapon if not maintained properly absolutely and I you know I I, I always tell them too in, in, in a very simplistic mean or manner um, a doctor will maintain one individual on an operating table you maintain 300 plus you have to understand that 
your ramifications of your actions, if you cut corners, you decide that it's okay to cheat a little bit, could be very costly and more so than a doctor 300 times. So I say, you know, it's a responsibility that you shouldn't take lightly. And if you do, then you shouldn't be in this business. And when you and I spoke prior to this podcast, you had a great line, and, and I'm going to use it. You called it "get homeitis." Right. How do you, when you mentor these these young individuals, explain to them and talk about February third, nineteen fifty nine, the day the music died, or the unfortunate thing with JFK Jr., where they you and this is me speaking on my own behalf of "get homeitis," where they where they pushed it too far. How do you explain to them by using examples in history that? You, you can never cut corners when it comes to an aircraft. Yeah, it's, it, you know, the get home-itis term I use is really was, was termed to, uh, to the pilots because when, when we did accident investigations and I was involved in, in several that were just that, they didn't have to fly today. They didn't have to, to, to cut the corner to get home. The weather wasn't really right for them to be flying. Um, so you, the biggest thing is, I guess, to explain to them that... Um, this, this need, mainly with the operational side, with the pilots, is the need to, to get home should be the last thing on your list. Because if you absolutely positively have to get there, drive. Don't fly. I mean, it's as simple as that. Because, you know, you, you, the problem is, is you, you, you take the chance to get there, and then all of a sudden, I got to get home. Um, and the weather turns bad. And our decision, you know, this is the human factors thing. Our decision making isn't always that good. You know, it's, it's that... I'd rather sleep in my bed tonight than check into a hotel, but maybe you won't sleep in your bed tonight. So, I mean, it, it, you gotta you gotta put that concept in their mind and and literally scare them a little bit. Uh, and I don't like to do that because that that, that sets a whole nother. I don't really want to be involved in this business. I did it for forty five, almost four. I'm just saying today, forty six years coming up. Um, I never lost sleep at night. When I went to sleep at night. My conscience was clean. I did the right thing all the time. So, um, it's there's those are the people we want in this business, and I think those are the people that we rely on to do the job right. It, it, that's that's a it, impactful because that's just extremely impactful. Because if you look at the weather advisories and they're ignored, is there software or things? Is it human factors that are being done to teach these young pilots about weather advisories? And when it comes out not to ignore them and to take them with the utmost seriousness? Yeah, I, again, I'm not being a, a, a professed pilot here. Um, <laughs> I only maintain them. But, uh, Which I, is I a do, very important role. <laughs> I do know that, um, that friends of mine are flight instructors, and you know I'm always busting them about a little more. You need to teach these guys a little more about, about pre-flight, a little bit more about what they're looking at when they walk around this airplane. Um, as far as the weather and stuff goes, I know... The guys that I've flown with, the guys that I've been instructed, me when I started flying a little bit, um, they were very, very in tune to that sort of stuff. You know, if it's not good today, we're not going up. And furthermore, it's not a good experience flying in bad weather. I can tell you that too. I mean, um, when you're bounced around a little bit in a small airplane, it's not a good feeling and you better have the seasick bag right next to you because you're probably not going to hold your lunch down too long. So... (laughs) Um, no, it's you're right because for the individuals that haven't been in a plane with it, it's like you're on a roller coaster. Your your stomach's going up and down, and then and then your mind's racing. Oh, geez, here we go. Yeah, and it, it, it's not a it's not a comfortable experience. No, I've I've uh, I've gotten um, disorientation disorientation special. I've gotten it before. Luckily, with a very uh, 
um, seasoned pilot in the left seat. I was in the right seat flying at the time. And um, I said, you better take the airplane because I think I feel like we're upside down. And, you know, we talk about get your head back into the airplane. You don't think that you're flat and level. You think you're upside down and you're doing everything possible to fix that. And really you're flat and level or vice versa. Um, and instruments are so critical. That's why there's two or three of each. Um, your, your chances of all three being wrong are very slim. So trust your instruments, get your head back in the airplane and rely on what you got, you know, right there. Don't trust your mind because your mind can play some serious games uh, when you get into clouds and, and lose uh, ground reference. Because you're right about the instrument rated pilots, but to me, if, so when they're upside down and the stuff's not falling like a pen or a, or a water bottle's not falling down, they still think that they're upside down because their mind's playing tricks on them? Your mind is totally, I've, like I said, I've had the airplane sideways and, you know, what we call that a, a death spiral is what that, what that it leads to is because you start losing altitude and you can sense that and all you're doing is pulling back, but you're sideways and now the do, you're just turning a circle and you're losing altitude. And all your instruments are telling that the, the engine, the RPM is, is accelerating. The altitude is diminishing. Um, all these things are starting to happen. And if you just look in the airplane, you look at your horizon, you're sideways. It's like, what happened? And you don't feel it. You just don't feel it. And so you're just completely not understanding the actual circum circumstance of what's happening. Exactly. And your mind is, is plays games and it's, it's, it's telling you stronger than the instruments that, Hey, um, Trust me, don't trust those instruments. Tony, this is a great segue to, to human factors. For our listeners who might not be familiar with human factors, how would you describe it in a, in a non-technical context? The ability of a human to mess up something that's very simple. Let's put it that way. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> All right. I mean, every, every time, uh, and again, I will, I will, I will quote some, of, uh, some, some standards that have been set out there. Um, Boeing is one, one in a company that has done some research in this area. And uh, there's stuff online you can research yourself. But it's about 80% of aviation accidents and incidents are directly attributed to human factors. Mechanical, as well as operational, as well as, as, well as air traffic. Um, so that's a, that's a significant amount of screw-ups um, based on humans. Um, the machines have gotten so good with redundancies and systems that they kind of will let you know when you're messing up. Um, but we, in words of an old friend of mine, it's not the fact that we shoot ourselves in the foot, it's the fact that we reload the gun. We just do it over and over and over again. We don't seem to get it that someone else has probably perished because of the same mistake, and we're gonna try to, we're gonna try to escape it and, and beat it. And it's usually a human factors thing that we've messed up on. Is that going back to like with the horizon conversation we just had where the mind is overruling saying, oh no, my, it's more powerful? Yeah, yeah. It's your, 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 your thinking that, you know, shortcuts, uh, human factors, you've got guidance or you've got maintenance manuals that tell you to do it this way. But you know what? I've been doing it this way for 20 years. It's okay. It's not okay. That's, that's what gets you in trouble when you start saying, I know a shortcut. There are a lot of shortcuts that have happened over the years that have cause catastrophic accidents. Um, so it's those sort of things that, you know, I, I always play and I, I use those as examples sometimes when I go through uh, some classes and stuff that I have taught, even with SAE, that there's no room for this. You have a direction. It's just like a recipe. Build it to the recipe. At least you can't go wrong. 
right? You can't be the one in trouble. Would you compare and contrast? Is this a fair assumption where you say the shortcuts are the equivalent of the driver with a cell phone on, on driving a vehicle that's not paying attention? They think because they've done this drive a hundred million times, they know what's going on, but actually their mind is is in that text message or on that website, not on the road. I think the term is complacency, right? We're complacent. Yeah. We get complacent because we've done it. And you know, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of been on this road fifty times. I know the highway. I don't know the, any. I don't have any turns to take, so I'll be talking on the cell phone. And you see it every day um, and you see them swerving in front of you and you pass them and there they are on the cell phone and they're not paying attention to driving. It's, it's those sort of things that, you know, uh, it's just complacency. Um, I've done it, you know, I, I've done it this way. So it's all OK until you get until you don't do it right and you get caught. Until you get caught. Correct. And, and, and looking at if you compare a vehicle to the airline industry, just imagine if um, every time you're going to go to the grocery store, you're going to take the, the grandkids to the park or something. They have to do a pre-vehicle inspection. Maybe you would think about it differently. When you look at the pre-flight inspection for um, an aircraft, how long does that take? Is it, is it a standardized process of must look at this, must look at that? Is there, or just people just kind of go, okay, boop, 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 okay, looks good, painted it, and then away you go. Can you kind of shed some light onto that, please? I can. Um, again, I, I love it because um, when we did a big presentation in Oshkosh for several years where we worked with kids um, and we had an airplane, the FAA gave us an airplane, uh, and we did pre-flight inspections on the aircraft with kids. And mom and dad were the pilots usually, and they'd stand around watching while we did the pre-flight with the kids. And it was always, you know, take a notebook and a pad. I want you to write down discrepancies. And we'd make seven or eight things wrong. And I'd always get the kid on the side, and I'd say, all right, so how long does it take mom and dad to do a pre-flight? And the kid would say five minutes. It's like, really? You tell me if we can do a pre-flight in five minutes on this little Cessna 150. So we'd take 15, 20, 30 minutes sometimes because they'd have questions and go around the airplane. Um, And then I'd always ask them at the end, so how long should it take? And they'd say, I don't know, maybe maybe it took us a half hour, maybe a half hour. I said, let me tell you that the right answer is it should take as long as it takes to do it right. All right, this is your last chance. This is the last chance to find something that could be very deadly. And in numerous times, accident investigation, that's exactly what you find is something they should have found on a pre-flight. It's been there for a long time and they overlooked it. Um, and that's what ended up bringing the aircraft down. So. There's, it's, you know, I, I've sat many times in an FBO as an inspector and watched in a snowstorm the guy come out of the, the FBO, go over, brush the plane off, start it up, and fly away. It's like you're taking your life in your hands, and hopefully no one's with you. You know, their pre-flight is like just a, it's, it's not a big thing to them. But, again, it's not a big thing until it's a big thing. And then you wish you'd done a better job when you're, you know, five or 6,000 feet over the trees now. Wow. Is that where you've invented this line called keep your head in the airplane? Is that where that evolves from, from all these unfortunate incidents that you've seen throughout your career? It's still to keep your head in the airplane, your eyes in the airplane in the cockpit are really just more from a perspective of in, in bad weather, in the JFK scenario and those sort of things. Look, don't trust your head. Get your head inside. The outside's not going to tell you anything when you're in clouds. Your instruments will. So that's, that's really the thing that the, the, to get your eyes back in the airplane type thing that we've seen, you know, those sort of accidents where um, 
you know, it's, it's sad when you listen to the, the voice recordings, too, if the tower has been talking to them and, and they, you can tell that they're frazzled. They're, 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 they're mixing up their end number when they repeat, you know, their, their call sign or repeat, they're messing it up. And you know they're under stress, yet they don't ask for help. They don't say, I'm kind of confused. And then the next thing you know, they're in the woods somewhere or in, in, the, in the water somewhere. Um, it's just they're, they're, and again, I think that comes back a little bit with the ego. I'm too proud to ask for a little help. I'm kind of lost here. Um, get, get my bearings back. Can you give me another vector? Can I turn and, and straighten myself out? Because I'm really not lined up with the runway. I don't think I'm where I'm supposed to be. Um, but I'm a little too proud to ask that. So I'll just, I'll wing it. <laughs> Are ego and shortcuts the, the biggest, uh, flaw human factors flying? yeah <laughs> the biggest human factor um yeah i gotta say that they're they're right up there they're right up there the, it's funny the uh the, the majority of of uh it used to be maintenance was the bigger part of the 80 percent and 20 percent used to be maintenance was 80 percent of the problems maintenance mechanical failures and 20 percent was pilot that's kind of flipped now it's kind of went the other way because the technology you know we've got systems that are so much safer now on the maintenance side and um and now it's generally that we have pilots that kind of take chances i guess a little more than they should how can human factors continue to alleviate some of these risks as pilots tend to not let's go you know a b c one two three and they go a c g and kind of skip around i think awareness uh, grayson i think awareness is a big thing it's it's, it's getting the word out to them that, look we've seen this we're not telling you stories. I mean, we can cite hundreds of accidents. If you go on the NTSB website, you can pull them down. There's, there's hundreds of cases where it was human mess up. It wasn't the aircraft. It was the person that maintained it. It was the person that flew it. It was the person that was controlling it from the ground. It's those sort of things that have really, um, you know, they, they, they stand out. Wow. And with when we started introducing automation and, and newer technologies, what safety advancements will come from this? Will it start to eliminate some of the, the human egotistical shortcuts and replace it with technology that will not take shortcuts and will not be affected by ego? Yeah, I mean, today, uh, as of three years ago, when I was still doing in-route inspections with the FAA, where I would actually fly up front with the, the flight, flight crew, um, you know, these airplanes are auto land, they're auto take off, they're auto everything now. And it's pretty secure and safe. I mean, the, the pilots are there basically to oversee the uh, an emergency situation or something like that. But, you know, uh, you basically dial a, a dial for your altimeter. Now you set your altimeter and push go and it takes you up to that and you set your headings and the airplane kind of flies itself and they monitor uh, the, the, the route. Um, it has, and I, and I think as time goes on, there's more confidence in those systems. It gets uh, more robust, and I think um, that it, it, it will eliminate a lot of the human stupids. When we eliminate the human stupids, do we get to a point where from the control tower or the FAA pushes out that this is a no-fly zone? For instance, um, I live in an area where the president comes, and the airspace is shut down, and you can you you hear you hear these things going up there after somebody. Do we get to a point where that it's automatically pushed to the computers that okay you're in a no fly zone or there's a weather advisory you can't fly so a human you know, with their ego and their get homeitis can override it? Can they override that? No, they get to the point where the technology says no, you can't override it, and that will improve and increase safety. Uh, that's a good question. You know, I would hope that someday, yeah, we've got to uh, to a point where we've eliminated those 
those snafus, those mistakes. I really do hope that, you know, and I, I, I could foresee that happening because, as I say, every day technology changes to, uh, it's, it's, I remember round gauges with needles in them and that's all gone. It's a, it's a television screen like we're looking at right here now um, that is what the cockpit looks like in an airplane now. Big television screens and that's about it. And everything's on them. And what are the planes capable of today? You mentioned that they can take off and land on their own. Are they, can they fly fully autonomous today? Well, there's, there's research been done on that. Uh, there's drone aircraft that are, the military is already flying those where they fly pretty much uh, remote. Um, and there's also a move underway uh, for the commercial side too to start uh, some sort of a taxi service where there'll be a, a rotorcraft, basically a helicopter that can land in a field and that's your landing zone. You get in and someone will program this thing and fly it to the next stop. So it's, it's, it's there. Um, I believe that the problem is, is the regulations keeping up with those sort of programs. The industry is way ahead of, as you know, uh, regulations are law. Laws take time. It's, it's rulemaking. It's, it's a fairly large process. So, um, and being involved in some of those, it's frustrating. You're you're right though. There seems to be a genuine from from the VTOL industry. We had Mark Moore, who's the head of Uber Elevate, on an earlier podcast, and and he wrote the NASA Puffin paper, and he was going in deep and deep and deep into this stuff. And that there's a genuine when the regulatory has to catch up. And then I didn't realize to get is it certified an aircraft? The cost of certifying an aircraft and all these regulatory hurdles. It's gonna be really interesting to see if the FAA will continue to um, to innovate and allow these companies to innovate. So that brings me to the question of. What is the future of aviation? You remember, you remember the Jetsons? Jetsons are cool. <laughs> well, I think we're going to be there one day where, you know, this little airplane flies up next to your, uh, your home and uh, picks you up and takes you where you want to go and no one's in it except you or whatever. And I, I think we're, we're, we're going to be there someday. Uh, I don't know if it'll be in my lifetime, but probably we're going to be, I'm, I'm seeing it now anyways. Like I say, the military is flying drones from, from Colorado over in the Middle East, um, they, they're very capable of doing that now. And um, that technology uh, with GPS and everything else, you pretty much can, can pinpoint something very, very nicely uh, with the systems that we already have in place. So it's just a matter of getting the regulations in place to say, make sure that we're not, you know, we have a commitment to the people on the ground too um, with the FAA. So we want to make sure we're not putting one of those on some building or schoolyard somewhere. So uh, those are the important things that just have to be sorted out. They have to be sorted out for, you're right, for a variety of reasons. And you mentioned the schoolyard or the people. We don't want to have one drop in a major city because then we have a, a huge political problem, not to mention a safety problem. And the FAA, in my opinion, is not taking shortcuts and they're doing they're doing right by, by, by society. And Tony, as we look to wrap up this awesomely insightful conversation, what would you like the listeners to take away with them about the aerospace industry? Um, I want to say that the, it's, its growth is never ending. Um, if you have any desires whatsoever, uh, I, I, I highly recommend um, participating or, or jumping in with both feet. It's, uh, it, as I say, it never, the, the changes never end. Uh, technology is, is you know, soaring, uh, 3D printing. I look at things like that now that you can manufacture parts now with, with a printer. Uh, it, it's just it's phenomenal. Uh, composite blades and fan blades composite whoever would have thought composite the, your lightweightness it's just it fascinates me and that's why i've stayed engaged with this for so many years because um 
where can you get to play and uh, and get paid for it? I appreciate, you know, as a, a consumer and someone who flies, your mentorship with, with children and these young individuals and young adults that want to move into the industry because you're teaching them how to do it right. And I tip my hat to you because that it has to be reinforced more. And you have this incredible wealth of knowledge that you're you're sharing with these kids through the mentor program, but you're also sharing here on the podcast. So Tony, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time to share your expertise with us today. Well, thank you so much. Uh, if I can leave with you one, one more thing, uh, any, any listeners that have uh, corporations that, that are able to invite high school students into their facility for a day to, to shadow, and it doesn't necessarily have to be aviation, but manufacturing of any sort, um, let them get a feel for that. Because for me, college wasn't for me. It just wasn't something I was wanting to do. I was a hands-on kid from the time I was nine years old and owned my first mini bike. Um, so I look at it and say, look, um, get these kids engaged. There's technical trades out there that are just the best. And to me, uh, that, that, and they're going to be making more people, more, more, money, more money than doctors and lawyers if they, if they stick with it, to be honest with you. So, you know, go for it and um, jump in. It's, it's been a great career. And I think that anyone that um, has that fortitude would have the same experience I've had. Tony's right about the job prospects and as a parent, it is a wonderful career. And as we've heard it throughout this podcast, aerospace is a lifelong passion. So Tony, again, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Tune in next week to hear the first installment of our 2020 recap series. During this special episode, Justin Fall, Strategic Communications Manager, SAE International will join me to take a look at the companies solving the world's biggest challenges and how that creates a path to profitability. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast. 